This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. On today's show, we spoke with Ben Eltham about federal politics. Then we chatted with AC Grayling, who joined us in the studio to discuss humanism, the age of genius, as well as his latest book, War and Inquiry. Then joining us in the studio was London-based photographer Harry Borden. He's put together a book called Survivor, a portrait of the survivors of the Holocaust, and has been photographing Holocaust survivors over 10 years. And finally, we had a chat with Dr. Monica Gagliano from the University of Western Australia. She's a scientist there in evolutionary biology, and she spoke to us about her latest findings in a scientific study that looked at plants and the fact that they can actually hear and seek out true sources of water by listening for the authentic sound of trickling water. It just goes to show that there's a lot more happening beneath the ground than we realise. And you are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio Ben Altham, who's the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins us every week to talk federal politics. Thanks for coming in, Ben. Yeah, good morning, Amy. Morning. How was your weekend? Very relaxing. Thank you very much. That's good, good. Mine was too. Um, I caught up on a great deal of sleep, so I think that's the mark of success for me now. Well, they say that sleep is the new status symbol. Is so it? Wow. You're high um, status. That's I am great. very high status. Great. I'm glad I can flout that in some <laughs> regard in my life. It's <laughs> quite refreshing. So, Ben, federal politics, what's happening at the moment? Because, I mean, over the, over the last week, um, quite a bit has happened in a range of areas. So maybe let's start with uh, Adani, because Malcolm Turnbull, our Prime Minister, has been in India talking to the PM Modi and also to uh, Adani business members and, and yeah, senior well, executives. Yeah, Adani himself, in fact. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and there's been quite a lot of pressure put on the federal government um, on about Adani, particularly this $1 billion loan to Adani to build a rail line between its proposed Carmichael coal mine and Abbott Point, which is where you ship the coal out of and to India. Can you tell us more about where we're at with this $1 billion loan and why we're even considering giving it to Adani? Yeah, well, the, the government has this special kind of slush fund, I think it's fair to call it, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund, which is, uh, yeah, it's a sort of pot of money that it claims to want to be able to give out to nationally important infrastructure projects in the northern half of Australia. Now, um, that that's all very well and good, but um, one of the things that has been mooted has been a loan to Adani to build this rail line. Now, of course, this is very controversial because it gets into the Carmichael coal mine, which will, if built, be one of the largest coal mines in the world. It'll have catastrophic implications for climate emissions. I mean, just enormous amounts of carbon that they want to dig up and, and send away to be burnt. Um, and it will be exported out of Abbott Point. Now, Abbott Point is on the coast. It's next to the Barrier Reef. It was just hit by a massive cyclone uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and in fact, that led to major flooding of the coal port at Abbott Point um, and contamination of a huge stretch of wetlands and beaches. Which is now black. Yeah, it's absolutely. Pretty, pretty much black. And yeah. that was something where um, the coal mine, I believe, let out or released excess water into that area. I think it was just a flood, actually. I mean, I, I don't... Oh, I, don't I read that, that it was actually... Well, it was a controlled release. Yeah, it, that it, there was... <laughs> 
I know. We're not calling it a spill. We're no, calling it a controlled, controlled release. release. With environmental <laughs> effects that were unintentional. I'm sure they were unintentional. Yeah. Yes, yes. Oh, well, I'm sure they'll get a slap on the wrist from the Queensland government, but not much more than that because the Queensland government is, of course, 100% behind the Carmichael mine. So the Queensland government wants it to go ahead. Which is surprising because this is a Labor government. This has been hugely controversial in the Queensland Labor Party and, um, you know, uh, if you if you talk to some people in the Labor Party up there, I've got some sources, and it, there's very a lot of internal warfare going on behind the scenes. But for whatever reason, the the government signed off on it. They say it's about the jobs and the export earnings and that kind of usual rubbish. But um, y- you know, there's also a lot of lobbying that's gone on, and I, and I think really, uh, you know, we do need to get to the bottom of exactly why both the federal and state governments are in favour of this mine because uh, the economic impacts are not very good. I mean, there'll be a little bit of impact, there'll be a little bit of help for the economy, but it's hardly that much. And the catastrophic environmental impact, I think, is pretty obvious for anyone to see, even leaving aside the pollution issues of of the reef and things like that. Absolutely. And in particular, um, there's been this contention and some actual Liberal Party uh, members and former leaders such as John Hewson, um, who have been criticising Turnbull for even considering lending Adani this $1 billion um, because he says that the fund should only be used to help projects become commercially viable. Um, And apparently that really isn't the case because either way, Adani could potentially just fund its own railway. Well, it's very controversial to what degree the Carmichael mine is even an economic proposition. And it, how many jobs it will create. How, well, yeah, how many jobs it will create is a, is one thing. So the government and Adani claim it will be 10,000 jobs, but then what they told a court in the land court hearings a few years ago was it was actually 1,400 jobs. So a little bit of a difference there. But also the, the price of the coal that they're likely to be selling is going to be quite high the coal price on the international markets at the moment is quite low. So people are asking how is it that a Adani can afford to sell itself coal at higher than the international market rate. Then you've got the situation in India where Adani's under investigation for a bunch of environmental breaches of, of various projects that it's been engaged with. There's a lot of a lot of very, very complicated politics there. Um, the Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, uh, has long-standing ties to the Adani family in Gujarat going back many, many years. Uh, in fact, uh, Adani even flew Modi to his inauguration in an Adani jet. So they're very, very close, uh, Modi and the Adani family. So, you know, like this is this is literally an oligarch we're talking about here that uh, the Australian and Queensland governments are getting into bed with. Well, I mean, we're going to find out very soon as to whether Adani, the Adani board is actually going to approve the project. I think it's about May, so we're, we're nearly there. What do you think is going to happen? Well, if they do approve the project and it goes ahead, I think what we'll see is a new Franklin River kind of protest movement. This is undoubtedly going to be the rallying point for the Australian environmental movement over the next few years. If the mine really does begin construction, then I expect to see people from all around the world actually 
actually come to North Queensland and protest. And, and I think we'll see extremely com- extremely high levels of conflict, you know, lots of people getting arrested and possibly even violence because environmentalists know that if this mine goes ahead, it's pretty much over for the Great Barrier Reef. You know, mm-hmm. we're talking about literally just saying, yeah, we don't care if the Barrier Reef dies. Um, and, and I think people will, are willing to fight for that and not just environmentalists, farmers. I mean, the, the water implications of this mine are amazing. There's been an astounding amount of water granted to Adani literally for no cost by the Queensland government. So anyway, you look at it, I mean, it stinks to high heaven. It doesn't stack up on really any kind of environmental or economic grounds. Um, and, and I think that if it goes ahead, it says some pretty pretty sad things about the state of Australia's democracy, actually, because I don't think that the majority of Queenslanders, let alone Australians, want this mine to go ahead. I couldn't agree more. And um, it's interesting to see Bob Brown putting his um, firepower behind this movement as well and um, suggesting that he'll advocate on this until it's absolutely solved in in their favour. Yeah, I mean, I just think that there'll be some kind of blockade and some kind of long-running environmental protest that may well, in fact, cause the mine to be unprofitable. I mean, we've seen this in other aspects, in other protests around the world and in Australia, that you need a social licence to operate if you're going to Mm. do these big resource projects. Now, the Carmichael mine doesn't have that. Definitely doesn't. And Ben, let's look um, a little bit further afield. Um, Over at uh, Manus Island, we saw some, um, I guess, violence and conflict, uh, but not really two-sided. It seemed to be quite one-sided. This is on Friday night at about 6.30pm that a large group of local men, um, which may have been or was purported to have been... uh, PNG uh, defence force members, not police, but defence force members, um, attacking refugees and asylum seekers uh, through the fence and uh, firing shots into the detention centre. What has uh, resulted since then, Ben, in terms of our understanding of what occurred? Well, we don't know a whole lot more, unfortunately, and we're really waiting for reports to trickle out. Uh, Of course, the the federal government, as is their want, have washed their hands of the whole incident and said it's basically a matter for Papua New Guinea. Uh, Again, I think showing just the the rank dishonesty of the government when it comes to immigration policy. I mean, this is an Australian camp, obviously, housing immigrants coming to Australia, asylum seekers who wanted to, to come to Australia, and Australia's shipped them off to PNG. Um, I think this is a, maybe it's another example of social licence to operate because the, the camp in Minus Island has never been popular with the locals in Minus Island. It's never been uh, accepted really there. They've, they've been pretty critical of it for the whole time. Um, and, you know, we've already seen one incident of violence by PNG uh, police and guards against uh, asylum seekers. That was when Reza Barahi was murdered mm. um, a couple of years ago. So here was another very, very terrifying incident you know and I think it just gives the lie to the the whole idea that that Australia is somehow creating a better environment for these these asylum seekers I mean the whole justification for setting up these concentration camps if you like um, was to stop uh, people getting on boats and and potentially drowning but um, I mean if they're subject to violence from the place where we've sent them to, then that would rather suggest to me that uh, our immigration program is failing. But of course, you know, I would say that I'm an inner city lefty who <laughs> likes drinking cafe lattes and whatever. 
We do, we do. We've both had one this morning, so guilty as charged, uh, Ben. But also, I mean, Manus Island, the detention centre there is meant to be being closed um, and it's meant to be October 31st, according to Peter Dutton. Where are we going to put these refugees or asylum seekers if we the US hasn't approved or processed their claims? Well, we don't know. The government hasn't told us whether those uh, asylum seekers will be returned to other parts of the Australian immigration gulag, you know, whether they'll be shipped to Christmas Island or Nauru or... Who knows? They won't be taken to Australia. I think we can be pretty sure about that. Um, not many of them clearly are going to be granted asylum in Papua New Guinea. Uh, the Papua New Guinea government has made that very clear. Mm. Uh, so remember that this camp was ruled to be unconstitutional by the New Guinea High Court. So, you know, th- this is essentially an illegal camp that Australia is paying for in PNG and that's why it's being shut down. Uh, but, you know, I guess... Um, as is so common in Australian immigration policy, with the I guess with both major parties uh, in favour of the current system of offshore detention, then you know there's very little scrutiny except from a couple of media outlets, and yeah. you know these kind of abuses and crimes and outrages seem to go fairly unnoticed. Yeah, well, you see the odd advocacy group really, you know, making their voice heard, but it really goes unnoticed by even those uh, Australians usually engaged on these issues. Yeah, I mean, the horrible thing about this is, and and I think this is quite depressing, is that the government has managed to normalise this very brutal system of offshore detention. And it now doesn't seem so remarkable to us. And and I think that is something that should should be very sobering to to us. Absolutely. And um, moving back to one of the issues we've been chatting about pretty much every week is housing affordability. Um, And one of the, I guess, latest developments is the ATO's release of their tax statistics for the financial year of 2014-15, which revealed that uh, the number of people um, negative gearing their properties has stayed about the same in the past three years because interest rates have fallen. Um, But there's also been an increase in investors uh, negative gearing as opposed to first home buyers or owner occupiers. Um, And the biggest growth in negative gearing has has been to those owning multiple properties and there's huge amounts. There's been a 9.2% increase in the number of landlords who own five or more properties. Is that you know, excess spend, <laughs> to state the obvious. Well, that, I guess that depends on what your view of the role of the private sector in real estate is. You know, if you if you think that it's perfectly acceptable for people to own houses and rent them out to renters, then you would have no problem with that. But five is a lot if that's not your primary business. Well, I would argue that once you're up to about five or six, it probably is your primary business. You know, you are at that point, you know, a landlord pretty much. Um, Well, you're a landlord as soon as you're renting out one, but if you're renting out a number of them, then I would suggest that you're uh, well on your way to being a property magnate. Or uh, just a high income earner who also has that on the side. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a fascinating trove of statistics from the ATO. I think one of the other things it reveals is that the occupation uh, which has the highest amount of negative gearing is surgeons. Yeah, so, anaesthetists. Yeah, so it's a, a real snapshot into the growing inequality in Australian society, of course. It's the haves mm-hmm. and the have-nots. Who has the property? Well, it's the rich people. And who is who can't buy property? Well, it's the poor people. And, you know, and I think this is... This underlines the big problem of housing affordability, as we've talked about on the show a few times, you know. And 
even if there isn't a property bubble in this country, it's almost in a way that's almost worse because what we're saying then is it's going to get worse and worse and that house prices are going to climb ever skywards and that's going to lock out uh, a larger and larger percentage of the Australian population from ever owning a house. And that's a big problem, firstly, if you think that it's a good idea for people to own houses. Secondly, because Australia's entire retirement system is based around the idea that pensioners will own a house in their retirement um, because there's no way that you can really live in any kind of comfort on the pension if you have to rent in this country, even leaving aside all of the insecurity that renting brings with it. So um, there's some big, big social problems that the housing problem has caused in Australia, and, and I don't think we're any closer to addressing them. Well, Scott Morrison has come out in his speeches in the past week and a half or so and kind of floated that actually housing affordability would be a focus of the budget, and yet he's ruled out most of the levers that government or federal government actually has to make a difference to the issue. I mean, what, where can he go on this, aside from the thought bubble of letting uh, younger people dip into their superannuation to put down a deposit? Yeah, well, this is another one of those Turnbull government kind of float the idea and then, you know, decide not to do it kind of things. Um, yeah, the, the idea has been floated a number of times, letting younger people access their superannuation savings to get into the housing market. Well, Nearly everyone thinks that's a really bad idea, including most of the coalition, for the obvious reason that it will just ratchet up house prices even higher because all you're doing there is giving house buyers uh, more chances to buy. You know, it's just giving them um, uh, more spending power and that will just obviously, in a limited market, ratchet up house prices. Um, but, you know, there is no solution to this in the short term because uh, it's a very complex problem that's taken a generation to develop. Yes, we need to build more houses. I think everyone agrees on that. Uh, but, you know, that's just the start of it, isn't it? And, of course, we've talked a number of times about things that the government could do, like getting rid of the capital gains tax discount for the house, getting rid of negative gearing for property investors. But for a whole bunch of political reasons, the government's not going to do that. So, yeah, they don't have any answers to this big social problem and and I think that's starting to hurt them um, with voters. Well, absolutely, given that economics is apparently their strong suit, usually uh, in election time and this is certainly one of the things that they would hope to win on. Uh, But, I mean, we're going to have to wait, I guess, until a government that does want to change those key uh, taxation concessions such as a Labor government to actually see something happen. Yes, it does seem as though this will be a bridge too far for the coalition. Uh, You know, and I think really if they can't do it now when most of the commentariat are screaming for it, when Mm. Labor agrees with it, so they've got bipartisan support if they want to go there, um, when there's clearly a a bubble in Sydney and Melbourne at least, um, and when, you know, it would actually even help the budget bottom line because these are tax concessions so they could claw back some tax revenue. I mean, if those aren't enough for the government (laughs) to move on negative gearing, then I I guess no coalition government will ever do it, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will keep an eye on this and continue to discuss the many ways that we could actually hypothetically fix the situation and maybe we will see a development if the pressure continues to build. Yeah, well, watch this space, I suppose, Amy. Mm. Thanks so much for coming in, Ben. Thank you. It's been fantastic to have you as usual. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. And I'm very pleased now to have in the studio with me, all the way from London, uh, 
AC Grayling. He's a professor of philosophy and master of the New College of Humanities in London. He's also the author of more than 30 books. One of the the books that he's written just recently and is out uh, very soon is called War and Inquiry. And prior to that, he also wrote a book called The Age of Genius, The 17th Century and the Birth of the Modern Mind. Now, AC Grayling is in Melbourne to discuss the origins and future of humanism. So while I have him here, I'm going to get him to touch on all of those topics and uh, and weave in a bit of a narrative here about his um, many interests and expertise. So thank you very much, uh, AC Grayling, for joining us. Well, pleasure. So let's just start off with humanism, because uh, I think that's a nice broad point to start. So with this lecture that you're you're going to be providing or giving tonight, which uh, is in St Kilda, you're going to be discussing the origins of humanism. Now, you've written on humanism before, and, and I've seen some of your pieces on this, and I'm very interested, first of all, to gather your understanding of humanism and why it's necessary or needed as opposed to or it might be a replacement for religion? Yes, in in the contemporary sense of the word humanism, it means a a non-religious, secular, ethical outlook. And unlike most ethical outlooks, or indeed moral codes, which are even more stern sometimes in their requirements of us, uh, it's more an attitude than it is a set of do's and don'ts or prescriptions, other than the one prescription to think for yourself and to take responsibility for how you act towards others. But the attitude it enjoins is one of compassion, really, of generosity and sympathy to other human beings until, that is, they they cross a line of some kind and, and show that, whatever, through greed or cruelty or something, they merit our condemnation but but our default approach to other human beings should be a generous one because after all it's not always easy to be a human being and lives can have shadows across them and difficulties and sorrows and we're all you know making an effort of one kind or another so that sense of fellowship really of community between people is absolutely at the heart of the humanist outlook that's the essence of it and so it's about self-awareness, um, a certain level of your the sense of yourself and then also how you fit within the broader context or the, the broader humanity. But also you talk about morality and how that and ethics and how that fits in with humanism and, and that it really is um, a secular morality or ethics uh, that we can all create for ourselves. But really, as you say, the tenet is about considering your impact upon other humans as well. What do you think it, it really uniquely offers as opposed to religion? And why should we be thinking about this approach um, in going forward? Well, let's begin by distinguishing first between ethics and morality, actually, because they're not quite the same thing. The word ethics comes from an ancient Greek word, ethos, which means character. So when we're thinking about ethics, we're thinking about the answer we give to the question, what sort of person should I be and how should I live my life? And of course, that's a much, much more inclusive project than the narrower and more focused set of questions in morality about what are my duties and obligations towards others, about keeping faith, for example, keeping your promises, uh, trying to be truthful, etc. Now, your morality might very well flow from your ethics, but there will be many more questions and much more about you as, a, as an individual embraced in the ethical concerns that you have than just in your morality. And so it's ethics that really matters to the humanist. And the point about uh, religious moralities is that there is always a third party in them. 
your obligations to other uh, human individuals is always carried out in the light of some you know, posthumous possibility and getting your brownie points for getting into heaven or you you act that way because you're expected to or a demand is made of you by a deity. In the case of humanism, it comes from just the fact of being a human being and respecting that fact in others. And also you're discussing, you're talking about um, the positives of acting morally, uh, but there are also negatives in, in religion for not following certain doctrine and expectations of behaviour. Is this humanism a positive approach to life as opposed to religion, which seems to be more um, in the negative? Yeah, the, the real problem with uh, religious moralities is that morality came late to religion. In fact, it's really only a feature of this of the young religions of the world, Christianity and Islam, and it's kind of bolted on in a way, uh, and has a connection with the taboos and the regulations and the sort of discipline of living the life believed to be required by a deity, and so you you see these terrible conflicts and confrontations between different religious outlooks because each one thinks it has the right answer to the right way to live and it deprecates how other people behave and what they think and that is why you sometimes get as you look across the landscape of history the most frightful uh, wars and atrocities breaking out between people of different outlooks whereas humanism offers the whole planet a, a kind of opportunity in a way to think and uh, deal with others on the same kind of footing. Because one thing which is really central to the humanist outlook is a realization that we are social creatures, essentially social. Never we need one another. We need our friendships and to be members of communities. We need to love and be loved. We need to feel that we're cared for by others and that we care for others and it's on that basis and in particular on the basis of our ability to recognize how things are with others when others are happy and full of joy or when others are sad or in pain you know it makes a kind of claim on us and we can really enter into the feelings and concerns of other people which is what uh, constitutes those bonds between us and humanism focuses on those so it's around community really, it seems to be, and the bonds between humans. But let's talk about the individual humanist within this and how they behave. One of the examples that we've seen in philosophy um, has come from Jean-Paul Sartre, who uh, delivered a lecture called Existentialism is a Humanism. And the key there is a humanism. So broadly speaking, it's related to humanism, but it's not necessarily the humanism that we're discussing. But In that, he focuses very much on how the individual uh, can affect change and make free choices. And and also that when he chooses, and I say he by meaning everyone, when he chooses, he chooses for all mankind or humankind. And that every human acting in good faith, when they're making a conscious choice, um, is actually choosing for all of humankind. Can you expound on whether Sartre's view fits in with a modern uh, or contemporary view of humanism in the humanism that you're kind of describing at the moment? Yes, it does, In uh, especially in the sense in which um, the argument always, of course, about any ethical outlook is that it runs on two legs. There is, on the one hand, the individual himself or herself and what he or she owes 
to uh, himself or herself. And then there's the impact on others and the importance of our relationships with others. In the case of existentialism in particular, the focus there, and also in the related view in Camus and absurdism, is the the terrifying fact of, of freedom, of autonomy, and the fact that you have to make choices and that you, it's not an option because the choices you make don't only impact you, they also, of course, impact everybody else. A little bit like the butterfly that's stamped. There's a kind of chaos theory element to this, which is why the rest of, the huma- of humanity is implicated in what you do. But from the point of view of the individual, the individual has this very, very deep duty to try to think things through. This was the great Socratic challenge. You know, he asked people in his uh, Athenian community in his own day what he, they thought they meant by the kinds of concepts that they took to shape and color the way they act and relate to others. And he was sort of shocked in a way by the the thinness, the shallowness of their understanding of what it was they thought they meant by those concepts. And his great demand of them was to think it through. And so the individual responsibility is to think things through and then, of course, on that basis, to make a choice. And that connects up with Sartre because the idea of authenticity, the idea of living a life which really you know, has a, a, a sort of genuine depth to it, arises out of the fact that you have to. It's an obligation that you have as a, a radically free being uh, to make that choice. And let's talk a little bit about the humanism and its history. How have we got to this point in terms of the development of humanism? Because as it show, says in the title, there's the origins of humanism. And I'm wondering if there's a moment of a crossover in your book about the 17th century and the age of genius and the development of reason and method in scientific analysis and that that idea of looking outside of yourself and not thinking of yourself as the, the centre of the universe. Are there any commonalities or points of um, interception at that 17th century point? And, and where has it come from originally? Well, uh, right at the outset, I said in the contemporary sense of the term humanism, it is, etc., etc., a non-religious ethical outlook. This is because the word humanism was coined and applied in the Renaissance period by people who, in their rediscovery of the great works, the philosophy, the outlook, the poetry, the mindset of classical antiquity, were reapplying it and refreshing their view of the world through that newly polished lens of understanding. And so there were plenty of people, like, for example, Erasmus, who were religious still, but who adopted this new way of looking at things. And the the key thing was this, that in the period prior to the Renaissance, in the medieval period, the focus of everybody's attention was on the afterlife, on getting through this veil of tears and escaping into the light, you know, when you were dead. What the Renaissance discovered was that this world is full of value. And so by turning attention to life in the here and now, in the present, between cradle and grave, uh, they they were uh, recapturing the sense of what it is to live, to be alive, to be human, that the philosophers, the thinkers, the poets of, of antiquity had. So the word humanism there directed attention to human experience, not the divine, even though it was still in the framework of a religious outlook. But of course, the two are incompatible. And so humanism very, very quickly shed its religious trappings. And this shedding took place pretty well in the 16th and 17th centuries. And the reason for it is a complex one, but very, very briefly, it is that the, uh, the liberation of, of thought 
from the trammels of an imposed orthodoxy. I mean, the, sort of in the Church of Rome uh, would kill people if they were heterodox in their views or challenged the way that the Church viewed the world and wanted people to think. And the Protestant Reformation made it possible for people to get rid of all that. And as soon as they'd done so, they started to get rid not just of uh, doctrine, of theological doctrine, but of ways of looking at the world which were theologically infused. And so the secular attitude arose, that of course is very closely allied to the rise of science, and along with it, a view of ethics and the way human beings could live and be, which was also free of that way of looking at things. And so humanism really began to emerge into what we think of as its contemporary sense now in about that period. Well, that's really interesting because I, I did kind of have this feeling that, um, well, in your book, in, in The Age of Genius, you talk about um, philosophy and science or the natural world really having a great deal of overlap um, and that they were both developing um, at the same time and moving towards this um, idea of rationality before we move into the Enlightenment. And you do name um, a couple of key philosophers, uh, René Descartes and Francis Bacon, as well as uh, the Frenchman Marin Messin, who you say, quote, is a kind of one-man-human one man internet server, which I found very interesting, and that really this um, proliferation of ideas and this move towards uh, establishing a method and a way of understanding the natural world, observing it, and then really decisively saying, well, from point A we can go to point B and then we can safely move to point C – this is really uh, a process that happens through technology, mainly through a technology of the postal service, um, and that there's this informal peer review process that's occurring. Um, in your uh, view, and and really looking at these key philosophers, do you think that um, that this is really the start of the humanistic outlook in science as well? I think it is actually because science is in itself a kind of, of humanism um, because it is predicated on the idea that reality is is rational in the sense that one can make sense of it. Is It is something which is orderly, uh, which is governed by natural law and that a disciplined approach to its, the investigation of it can really tell us something about it and even indeed to some extent give us some measure of control or mastery of it uh, as is the case of course with harnessing electricity and, and uh, developing medicines and the like. So it's very much connected with this. Terribly important though uh, to notice that um, some people think of humanism as being very human-centric and ignoring the needs and interests of other animals or the environment in general. So when you think about science as a secular humanistic project, uh, you see that through its fascination with an investigation of the natural world, it brings the whole of the natural world, not just animal nature, but, but the botanical realm and, and the geological realm, into focus as something which belongs to our sphere of moral concern. That we have a duty uh, not merely to understand but to be good caretakers of uh, or good partners to the rest of the natural world also. So that is something which if you're thinking about uh, kind of humanistic ethics, the ethics of the, of the lives we lead in the here and now, then we think about its context, the world around us, and that immediately gives rise of course to the sense of the responsibility that we have to it. 
Absolutely. And that does make me think of um, the contemporary need for that focus. Uh, I interviewed um, a German forester on the show uh, about two months ago, uh, Peter Volleben, who wrote a book, The Hidden Life of Trees. Oh, I love that book. <laughs> Isn't it great? Yeah. yeah. And that that really um, sparked an interest of mine in the idea that trees aren't really these passive things that sit there and suck up water and, um, you know, process carbon, but they're actually really uh, networks and establishing relationships between uh, species and between family and that perhaps we should be thinking about the natural world, especially um, things that we think may not have a brain or a a clear sense of themselves, um, that we should also be, when we're acting, thinking about our impact upon those. Do you think that that is one of the core benefits of humanism in the 21st century and what it could actually do for our approach to thinking about living things? Yes, very, very much so, because, of course, it's a a premise of the religious attitude towards the world that it was provided to us for our use, for our exploitation. You need only go back to the book of Genesis and see, you know, know, here's all the stuff that you can can cut down and kill and eat and, and so on. And the idea of being uh, dependent upon the natural environment around us, of living in it, of being part of it, of being a partner to it, I think is really, really key and should be a, a great feature indeed of our our ethical outlook and our action. And I remember when I was reading that, that book and so enjoying it, there was a moment where I sort of gasped actually because I remember years ago giving a talk about how the um, religious mindset might have arisen in, among our forebears. And I used the example of how when you're walking on your own in a forest and you stop in the silence or near silence and you hear the susurration of the leaves and, you know, there is a kind of mysterious sense of, of life going on around you, not merely vegetable life, not, not something reductively understood. And reading that book made me think, yes, well, the life is real life. There's communication going on. There is sense of some kind of vegetable community at work here, you know. And this brings to mind, of course, all those theories like Gaia and the great connectedness of all life in our world. And when you think of the way human beings have trampled on it and despoiled it and poisoned it and really sort of made use of it in in terrible ways, I mean, wounded the very face of the planet by digging at it, uh, and then you think, well, that's very like dirtying up your own home where you live. And certainly when you're conscious of the fact that there is this great intricacy of life connected from the smallest things to the greatest things out there, and we're part of it, and that we haven't yet really fully realised how we should behave towards it, it really does become part of the ethical. Absolutely. And it perhaps challenges our our stereotype of a hierarchy of life and humans being at the top of it. Very much so, yes. I mean, all those great metaphors of the great chain of being. Uh, you know, this is a point I make in the Age of Genius book, is that right up until the very beginning of the 17th century, for almost all of human history, and with very, very few exceptions, there were one or two exceptional individuals, indeed, in antiquity who realised this, but everybody thought we were at the centre of the universe and at the pinnacle of creation. And in the year 1600, if you looked at the night sky, what you saw were the great heavenly bodies revolving around you. But by the end of that century, when you looked up in the sky, you saw these vast, vast distances of space. And these little points of light were just suns like your own sun, even indeed clusters of suns like your own sun. And that 
way of looking at things is so different and so vertiginous when you think of the great abysses of time and space involved that you cannot any longer have the arrogance to think of yourself as being the key point in the great narrative of space and time. So that was the that's what forged the modern mind really, that a dramatic shift of perspective in the way that we see things. Well, that's a lovely segue now into your new book, um, War and Inquiry, because we're talking here about um, the importance of protecting uh, one another and looking after one another and being kind and compassionate and also to not destroy our environment. And then in war, um, a lot of these things do occur and you might you know, have moments of existential questioning as to whether um, humanity really is com- compassionate and kind towards each other. So in this new book, you're talking here about uh, a range of topics, but in particular, the causes and effects of war and the theories behind war, historical theories that have really um, influenced war. Uh, let's start actually with, with one of the theories which many people might be familiar with, uh, but probably don't remember because it, it might have come up in high school is the just war theory um, and where it came from and what the key tenets of it are and just how relevant is it for current day warfare? Uh, It's still very, very relevant indeed. Now, a just war theory is normally associated with the thinking in Christian moral theology deriving from St. Augustine. He was the person who first articulated this idea, although it was Aquinas in the Summa Theologica who uh, systematized it in a way. And, of course, uh, uh, Christians are very self-congratulatory about this, um, but there are two things to be said about why they shouldn't be. (laughs) One is actually that thinking about the ethical dimensions of war is much, much much older than St. Augustine. You go back to Thucydides and you see him giving his reason for writing his account of the Peloponnesian War was that he said, war coarsens our moral sensibility. It gives the example of how the Athenians um, in the third year of the war uh, had decided to massacre the inhabitants of Mytilene on the island of Lesbos because they had broken their treaty obligations to Athens. But then they bethought themselves and said, no, no, we can't do that. That's, that's excessive. Twelve years later, when the island of Milos refused to submit to Athens, uh, there was no, no debate about it. They just went in and killed everybody. And in fact, in a rather famous um, uh, exchange between the Athenian generals and the ambassadors of Milos, the Athenians said to them, look, the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. Mm-hmm. Just forget any talk about right or wrong. And Thucydides said, this shows you that we really have to be alert to the fact that war does terrible things to us. And indeed, there are earlier examples. But the reason why we attribute just war theory to the Christians is this. If you look at the texts of Christianity, they say things like, turn the other cheek, love your enemy, blessed are the peacemakers, those who live by the sword shall die by it, etc., etc. So it is a pacifist religion. And some of the great thinkers of Christianity, like Martin Luther, for example, were emphatic that it is a pacifistic religion. But when in the palmy year of 380 AD and um, the Edict of Thessalonica, Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, a mighty military empire, it had to find some wriggle room for smiting the enemy and going to war, hence the origin of just war theory. Well, you're right, the Romans were very much engaged in a lot of war. In terms of your uh, your understanding of war's effect on humans, and, and you're mentioning there that it can coarsen our morality, how has it affected 
individuals who are engaged or who are the actors of war. And I'm not thinking about the generals sitting at their desks plotting uh, strategies in war, but I'm thinking about those soldiers and combatives who are in war, engaged in war, and how that um, can actually affect human kind and their approach to others? This is such a key question, this one, because it bears not just on uh, our understanding of human nature and whether or not uh, it tells us something about the propensity that all humans have or whether it's only some who can do terrible things. Uh, the the um, question also is about uh, the, the, the causes of war. Uh, is war somehow genetically programmed into human nature or perhaps male human nature? And, 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 and here's the interesting thing. In conscript armies, such, for example, as the Kitchener Army in the First World War, it turned out that only about 20% of the conscripts were effective. 80% of the soldiers couldn't, couldn't point their rifles at the enemy and fire. They would either shoot into the air or even indeed shoot themselves rather than shoot somebody else. The traumatic effect of, of violence in, in combat uh, is such that it shows that human beings are just simply not made that way. They're being traumatized by seeing death and agony and wounds and having to kill people or, or you know, having to be violent is, is, is such a piece of evidence about the fact that human beings are really not, not uh, um, naturally warlike. And the 20% of people who are have the same kind of psychological profile as recidivists in prison, people who go back and back and back and back to prison. And what they seem to lack is any sense of remorse or any memory of, of a horror that they committed or witnessed. So it looks like this is a minority thing, this ability to be violent and um, even indeed to want violence or to become habituated to it. Now, we make huge efforts to try to uh, in wartime anyway, use propaganda to make uh, our in-group see the out-group as terrible, to demonize them, to make them subhuman, to make it okay to be cruel to them. And we've seen horrible examples of this, of course, in the Holocaust and, 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 and other recent examples of genocides. But we have to work quite hard at it. And in fact, a very interesting example of this is what happened in the Vietnam War. The United States military recognized how difficult it is to make all the soldiers, even volunteer soldiers, be genuinely effective in combat. And so they devised techniques of training, especially through the medium of getting a sense of loyalty to your own unit so high that you felt it was more important to kill the enemy than to let down your fellows. So they used these psychological techniques. But uh, soldiers, if they are trained to kill, need to have the ablution, the shriving, the, the blessing and the forgiveness of their own communities when they come home. And the American military didn't have it in the Vietnam War and had left these terrible psychological scars among veterans because their own home community didn't approve of the war and they'd been trained to be among the most vicious and effective soldiers that there had ever been in history, apart from people like the Mongol hordes and so on. And they had no, you know, no blessing was given them when they got home. That's a really interesting consideration when you think of, the, of, of what happens to the human psyche, how it can be manipulated and what scars are left on it by the experience of this horrible thing that war is. Mm. It makes me think of um, the power of ideology in this. And 
in particular, uh, it reminds me of um, Adolf Eichmann, who very much constantly reinforced his point that he was just a cog in a bureaucratic machine and that he really had, uh, you know, no idea where the Jewish people were going when he was managing the railway lines. But also it then makes me think about the more ordinary uh, people, particularly there's an example um I think it was from Hamburg in Germany, and it's a very social democratic area, so one of the more left progressive areas. And that particular group uh, was sent to be part of the ordinary police, and then they were attached to the Einsatzgruppen, and the the killing squads in Eastern Europe. And that is probably one of the most extreme examples, apart from the gas chambers themselves, of humans face-to-face with other humans, the victim, and really um, the full breadth of atrocity in terms of the violence that that ensued. It wasn't necessarily just shooting people. There were other ways that it was expressed. But as you say, there is this 20% who really relish in it and then the other uh, 80% who are a a whole range of emotions but generally not um, necessarily buying into it. But in this particular scenario, there are a lot of people who felt a group pressure to be part of this and to make sure that they were also doing their duty because that 20% who relished it wanted to see that they weren't the only ones doing it. And there was, I guess, a guilt complex, but also a pressure that existed. And perhaps, and this is what I'd like your thoughts on, is that a product of um, a masculine grouping? So when you get um, a group of men together and this is the type of activity, are they? Is, is there a different dynamic or a particular dynamic that exists in war between men? Or is it something else altogether? Is it the ideology that um, coerces people as well as their peers? What are your thoughts? Oh, I think you're right about this. I think you've picked on something which is really central and terribly important because, of course, the Einsatzgruppen were, um, you know, practically in physical contact with the people that they murdered because they shot them in the back of the head or they herded them naked into great uh, uh, pits and and machine gunned them there and so on. And this is very, very different even from the gas chambers of uh, Auschwitz where, uh, you know, there were prisoners who were doing the hands-on work really and they were at a little bit of a remove from them. If you think about it from this angle, think about bomber pilots dropping bombs on a city, men, women and children, old people, ill people down below them, 20,000 feet below them. These bomber pilots might never have dreamt of pointing a pistol at a woman's head and pulling the trigger, but they would drop bombs on thousands of, of women. Distance makes it seem okay. In the case of the Einsatzgruppen, what made it okay was one thing that you put your finger on there, which is male bonding in, in groups. I mean, look at the comparison between a rugby team or, or you know any, any kind of um, uh, situation where male groupthink becomes really important uh, factor in how the individual members of that group will behave. A set of people committing murders and atrocities, as the Einsatzgruppen did, Firstly, they had to stand up in the in the eyes of their fellows who were doing it. Secondly, the fact that they were all doing it made it okay. They were kind of forgiven by the fact that the other people were doing it as well. Thirdly, of course, they had been, um, however they felt the first couple of times they did it, when they started to provide their own self-justifications for doing it, all the propaganda about the out-group, about the demonized group, about the fact that these people were responsible for all the a catastrophe that had happened in Germany before the war, uh, that kind of kicked in as a rationalization. So you can think of a complex of factors here which supported people in that activity. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that some of the people in those groups were not among the 20% of the recidivist-minded. And what hell they went through subsequently on their own, no longer with the support of the group, in an environment where the realization that this was simply not accepted by the vast majority of human beings. You know, what was, what was the mindset like of people afterwards? Uh, and even indeed, if you were to talk to people who are members of a very, very tightly bonded uh, sports team, let us say, and ask them about their you know, sort of post facto reflections on what it is to be a member of such a thing, to try to get those those clues about, and it really is a masculine thing, this, about masculine bonding and, and about what, what, it, it, what, what it makes you do that you might be ashamed of. In fact, you could look at parallels like a, a bunch of rugby players getting really drunk and really misbehaving themselves and singing, you know, dirty songs in the street and waking everybody up and so on. I bet you they would all feel individually ashamed afterwards. But while they were doing it, something else was in control. And it's it's a, a, an important thing to understand this because it happens and it's happening today as we speak in the Congo and places like that where atrocities are still being committed as a result of the way that this kind of grouping of uh, you know the madness of crowds element really groups people into uh, organisms that can do these things right outside our moral universe. Yes, and so the, looking at, at individualism and the individuals and then the group, it really is the factor of the group because as an individual, as you're saying, you wouldn't be doing that as a lone actor or it would be very unlikely that you would be. Well, indeed, you know, as a society, we think of any individual who does such a thing as being a sociopath at very least and, and even perhaps a psychopath. So the pathology, we, we, we think of such behaviour as pathological, um, which you know, raises this interesting question about the way that the universe of war, the universe of conflict, is so different from our ordinary universe, changes the rules, makes people think differently while they're caught up in it. And if they survive it, you know, we've got a really interesting situation in our world today in which, um, you know, big military machines like the United States military now, uh, body armor, frontline surgery, so many more people now survive injury on the battlefield physical injury, but not, of course, psychological injury, which is why we now have an epidemic of uh, 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 post-stress traumatic disorder. And this is very interesting because that is revealing about what happens in the human mind and in the male mind as a result of these sorts of conflicts. So if we're then looking at current wars and your book and, and what its focus is, what are the causes of current conflicts? Because previous conflicts, they were slightly more traditional in the sense of it's a state actor and a state actor or multiple state actors, and it's generally driven by the leadership of a particular state. But we're at this point now where there are civil conflicts that, although they may involve governments, they also involve other radical groups or separate groups you can think about um, IS and in Syria and Iraq. Um, you can think about civil wars like uh, the Assad regime versus the opposition in Syria. How um, have the, I guess, the different ways of doing war and the different actors in war changed our, I guess, theories or concepts of war or have they at all? Well, they have both changed the way war works and what happens in the case of war. Um, but in some respects also, they've brought back into the picture ways of war making, which had been uh, for a little while at any rate uh, squeezed out by how wars were fought um, up until about 1945 or so. 
the asymmetric warfare that we see now in which insurgent groups can keep huge military machines like the US military at bay for so long uh, has introduced this new factor or, or brought back into the picture this factor of um, the preparedness to commit the most awful inhumane atrocities. We see people in ISIS doing this, beheading prisoners and the like. Um, really a function, I suppose, a symptom of the degree of anger and fear and uh, sort of viciousness involved in the hostility that they feel to the forces they're fighting with. The, the great militaries, like the U.S. military, of course, are having to reinvent themselves. And so there's this feedback relationship which is introducing so many new and dangerous factors, like, for example, the use of drones to seek out uh, tribal insurgents in the badlands between Pakistan and Afghanistan as a harbinger of how unmanned vehicles and even indeed autonomous weapon systems will go out there looking for insurgents, profiling them automatically with no human on the loop uh, supervision of what's going on. Um, because trying to counter, you know, everybody is playing the game of trying to find the edge over however people fight at the moment. So trying to counter this means new ideas, new technologies, old ideas coming back into focus again. So the wars that are happening in the Middle East now are very unlike the Second World War, wars of great armies clashing on, uh, on a plane, you know. And it, it raises questions about how, if conflict continues, if we keep on fighting wars with one another, how, how it's going to end up. You know, if, if you think of these local wars always teetering on the brink of becoming much, much more generalized and dragging in more actors, maybe even you know, causing a great worldwide catastrophe again. It's not impossible. Seems like a sort of, you know, uh, a bit of over-anxiety, but alas, it's not impossible. Only think, the First World War, terribly destructive and wasteful of life, started as a little local difficulty, as you might say, in the Balkans. And the Middle East is a, an even more vicious situation than the Balkans was in 1913-14. So it's terribly um, anxiety-provoking, very difficult to read the future as you see the rapidity with which these techniques and technologies are evolving. And in terms of the potential overlap or, or bringing in of old ways of warfare, one example most recently has been in Syria where there's allegedly been a chemical attack. There certainly was some form of chemical dispersed in Syria and it's alleged that it was the um, the Assad government that did this. And it brought in um, nerve gas, which is a really extreme and very serious weapon that a lot of, uh, or most of, if not all of Western nations say that we disposed with that and we're not going to do that anymore because uh, you know we had mustard gas and that was the wrong thing to do. But now we're seeing that come back as as a way, also a very depersonal way of dealing with not only actual combatants, but civilians. What do you think about the development of this, these forms of warfare and weaponry, and also the religious element that we now have in our current warfare that exists? Or is it really a battle of values between Western, the Western world and um, radicalised Islam? Or is it something else? Are we making that a too simplistic way of describing the current situation? Um, well, on the first point, the point about the use of uh, nerve gas, um, when you're in a position of uh, threat in a time of great emergency and urgency, people will, after a while, reach for 
whatever's going to do the most harm to the enemy or stop them in their tracks. And this is the danger of war going on too long. This is exactly Thucydides' point. The longer the conflict goes on, the more desperate everybody becomes, the less concerned they are about any ethical constraints, and then they will do very, very terrible things. And the conflict in Syria has been dragging on for a number of years now, so uh, you could almost predict, uh, alas, that um, very, very terrible things will happen as a result. So that, that is one thought. The other thought is that religion, of course, has always been a major factor in wars right up to the 17th century. The Thirty Years' War, a terrible war at the very heart of that century, was a war between the Catholic and Protestant parts of, of Europe. And, of course, before that, the Crusades, before that, the conquest by the um, uh, by Islam of the Nestorian Christian Middle East and the Byzantine Empire, uh, they were all either prompted by religious fervor or resulted from the ideological clash of uh, religions. Religion gives too much license, really, to atrocity, uh, even indeed to the making of war. But what we're witnessing, I think, in the Middle East and in Afghanistan today is not a conflict between the West and Islam. It is a terribly, terribly tragic internecine civil war within Islam itself. You could see what's happening in Syria as a sort of proxy war between Saudi and Iran, between Sunni and Shia. And what happens in Western countries, in you know the uh, um, streets of Paris or in Brussels or in London or in the Twin Towers atrocity in New York, is actually a splashover. It's a by-blow of something which is terribly happening within the heart of Islam itself. And it's difficult to say what, what is it that one's witnessing there. Is one witnessing the 16th and 17th centuries as happened in the Christian story, the Reformation and a, a coming to terms with a new world, or, or is it not? Is it that the old way of thinking, the, the religious mindset, so intent on preserving itself and keeping its worldview alive, is it prepared to fight to the death to keep that? Is that what's going on? My own thought is that it might actually be rather paradoxically to say this, given that, you know, the birth rate in um, uh, Muslim-majority countries is much greater than the birth rate in Christian-majority countries. But this might be the death throes of religion. It might be what we're witnessing, what you see if you corner an animal and it becomes very violent and makes a lot of noise. So the volume might have gone up and the sparks might have gone up, but it might be because the globalizing effect of secularism has really pushed it into a corner. And that has been very prominent in Western society in the sense of many people identifying that they are agnostic or atheistic. Yeah. So then we come back to humanism, which is the great new way of, of approaching each other and the world. Oh, if only one could persuade everybody to be to be humanist. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> then, uh, you know, the, the, there wouldn't be any reason... The thing about religions is that they are very fertile in divisions, not only between religions but within them. I mean, think of Christianity. There are 22,000 different sects of Protestantism uh, in the United States alone, you know, so it, it would be just, a, I don't know, a great, great, great source of peace and amity in our world if we could think of one another first and foremost as human beings and not uh, you know, cling to these identities which are so distorting so often but so divisive always. 
Absolutely. Focusing on our commonalities instead of our differences. Thank you so much, uh, AC Grayling, for joining us and sharing so much of your expertise and knowledge with us on a, cr- a whole broad range of topics. It's been fascinating to, to hear from you. Thank you so much for having me on, Amy. It was lovely. And you're listening to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. And I have with me in the studio uh, a very special international guest who's made the trip from London and his name is Harry Borden. Thanks for joining us, Harry. Hi. So uh, you've put together a book that has been um, a long time in the making, I believe, about 10 years. And the book uh, is entitled Survivor, A Portrait of the Survivors of the Holocaust. Um, Let's just start off, I guess, with um, who you are in your day job, because I know that's quite a diverse job as it is, um, you know, being a photographer. But particularly, I know that you are known in the UK as a celebrity photographer and you photographed um, prominent people that I'm sure our listeners would know of, such as Margaret Thatcher. Tell me about your, I guess, uh, passion for photography, how that came about, um, and and what you've been doing in your career so far, because I know that you've also got a lot of works that are in the National Portrait Gallery in, in London, and then, then we'll move into this, I guess, um, long-term project that you've been working on. Mm, I mean, I I kind of, my my quest really has been to avoid doing a proper job and, uh, <laughs> you know, as some another photographer said, have a sort of a champagne lifestyle, but sadly on a beer salary. But basically... I, um, you know, uh, at the point when I was at school, I just thought, you know, it kind of had a veneer of glamour. So I sort of, my motivations were quite muddy initially to wanting to get into photography. And it was only when I went to college that I kind of really fell in love with the medium and got influenced by other photographers that sort of meant a great deal to me, you know, like Irving Penn and Richard Avedon and Diane Arbus, these sort of greats of photography who, who sort of um, subsequently I sort of over time learned were Jewish as well which kind of was interesting but I kind of um, you kind, it's a very fair kind of uh, transparent sort of medium so it's terrifying in the sense that you're only as good as your last job but that's also kind of exhilarating as well because if you um, there are sort of jobs that I've done along the way that uh, at the time seemed frivolous and, and, uh, and, and annoying I wasn't getting enough time and then nothing stops you getting something definitive and a, and a good example from an Australian perspective is I did a photograph of Michael Hutchins uh, a few months before he died and uh, then subsequently the pictures sort of become quite definitive they were sort of used as artwork for the work for the music he was working on and then there's on display at the in Canberra at the National Portrait Gallery but that's what you try and do is um, I, I try and use magazines to add to my body of work and I'm very proud of the portraits of celebrities that I've done and I, you try and get something definitive but fundamentally and I sort of give talks at colleges and I always emphasise this especially in a sort of a deindustrialising world try and do something that you derive intrinsic pleasure from rather than being sort of working for a paycheck and selling your life down the river because even if you're not a success at photography or my brother and sister are both painters you know even if whatever you do creative endeavor you know if you if you're not a success at least you've had an enjoyable life that's a very good point. And um, I know your sister painted that uh, portrait yeah, she did, of you. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's on your Twitter account and also mm. on your website, which is a wonderful um, portrait. Yeah. Um, so 
looking at some of the, I guess, work that you have done and now the link into this work, um, I know that uh, in some of the discussions around this this work, you said that you were giving a lecture and uh, and that and it was about your you know everyday work. And then you announced that you had this intention to to create this project around Holocaust survivors and um, not just. Uh, meeting them, photog- uh, photographing them, and also, I re- guess, understanding their story and their experiences and, and having them write in their own handwriting a note about their image or their life and mm. what they wanted the reader or the viewer to see or think about them. So, I mean, what brought you to that point of announcing to everyone, actually, um, you know, I, I do this work, which is, you know, really meaningful to me or enjoyable and, you know, it's always a challenge, but now I want to do this as well. Um, and and a really, uh, this is, as, a, as I said, 10-year pro- project. So, it's mm. something that, you know, there's a lot of commitment too. Yeah, absolutely. I know. Well, I just, uh, I just got to a point where, as quite often is the case, I think if uh, you know, if you sort of see the bigger picture and you're not totally motivated by status and money, you kind of get to a point where you know what is life about, you know. And I wanted to sort of make a contribution, sort of historically, produce something that, poten- that had the potential to be a, a historical artifact. And and uh, and as I said, was saying to you before was also um, an exploration of my identity, which was kind of quite complex. My mum's, you know, half Irish, half English. My dad's Jewish, but an atheist. His father was from Ukraine. His mother was from Romania. Um, He he was born in New York. Um, His parents came to America as economic migrants. And he, um, you know, started, uh, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, aware of the Holocaust, aware of the war, he lied about his age, joined the American Marines. And um, then then after that went into advertising, he was a sort of uh, one of the madmen on, on Madison Avenue. Uh, and and, and the, the opportunity to be uh, in a new agency in London arose after he'd met my mum and had me. Uh, and so they moved to London and they're working in an, in an advertising in London. And then my dad sort of must have had some kind of a midlife crisis <laughs> and decided to become a farmer and bought a pig farm in Devon. So from the age of seven onwards, I grew up in the West Country, in, you know, kind of quite a rural environment. And there were no... There were no Jewish people there wasn't really it wasn't a very cosmopolitan area no. so it was kind of an, uh, an exploration of my identity or part of my identity you know um, as well as as I said a, a an attempt to do something sort of historically significant and profound. Mm. And I mean, I, as I was saying off air, Devon is a beautiful place to stay and visit. Um, I did in my last trip to England, but also um, when was it that this I guess, moment of realisation or understanding that the Holocaust um, could have touched your family or did touch your family in some way, even if it wasn't direct, um, you know, that you were Jewish or considered Jewish, even if it wasn't something that you held as a religious belief, nor did your father. But even those German Jews in uh, Germany who identified more as Germans than as Jews uh, or weren't necessarily religious were still, um, you know, singled out and persecuted 
persecuted and then killed for being born um, Jewish. What was, when did you get to that point where you're, when you were questioning your identity and um, starting to understand the, your, the complexity of your um, personal history? Yeah, well, it was it was quite complex because I sort of, I've always had this kind of quite almost deluded sort of sense of uh, confidence and belief in myself. Uh, and my father, you know, you kind of as a ch- as a child, especially as a boy, you kind of idolise your father. And I and I remember um, sort of uh, you know being fe- and feeling quite good that my father was a bit different. My father sort of first and foremost defines himself as an American. You know, that's his religion. You know, he he has very little regard for being. Jewish apart from, you know, he's a staunch defender of Israel, for instance, but in, in general, he kind of drew, drew, drew a veil over his sort of spirituality. But I, I, I just remember my grandmother came and stayed with us, who was sort of more, uh, you know, maybe more in touch with her, you know, live, having lived in Romania and how life had changed and, and was as equally kind of evangelical about America and, and what all the opportunities that afforded. But she sort of emphasised the positivity of, of this this part of us. Um, and then my dad sort of bringing us down in a, in, in a way, sort of told us about, you know, at quite a young age about, about how Hitler would have killed us because of our sort of genetic inheritance. And it was it's a it's a profoundly disturbing thing a jarring thing and and sort of thrown into further relief by the fact that i sort of was quite a cocky confident little boy you know and then to sort of suddenly learn that a sector of of, of a society would consider me sort of less uh, than other people rather than you know um you know equal is quite disturbing that that my dad suddenly going from a hero to a kind of uh, underclass of uh, and that's what they were in eastern europe i said to, i said to my dad i suggested that we go to ukraine to sort of see where his family were from and his response was you know why would i want to go there they still hate jews you know so mm. i mean he's he's a bit kind of reluctant to do traveling for his own reasons but the point stood really Yes, and that anti-Semitism is still um, alive and well mm. across the world. Yeah, um, still an issue. And so let's then talk about um, in particular this book and the people that you've met. Um, so you've travelled across the world for this project, and even into Melbourne, Australia, um, to to photograph many of people here uh, in this area that mm. are Holocaust survivors. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So. I mean, let's look at, I guess, the method first um, because that becomes... It's slightly apparent when you're looking at it because it's very natural. Um, And, I mean, the paper's amazing too to see it not on glossy paper but on this Mm. really nice um, tactile kind of matte paper. Mm. Uh, But also that, I mean, these people are very natural in their... um, their stance. A lot of them are looking away from the camera. Um, Mm. There doesn't seem to be a lot of artificialness behind it. And what I've read um, from your approach was that you were looking to reduce the amount of, um, I guess, implements that you needed uh, Mm. as a photographer to be able to take the image to make it that natural. Can you explain or explore the process that you had, I guess, with your um, sitters? Yeah, I I try and avoid kind of... As a photographer, it's very easy to become formulaic. You you sort of... uh, Especially since I started sort of in the end of the 80s when it was kind of... 
it, as a medium, it kind of rewarded kind of male traits. I sort of think, think there are female traits and male traits and, you know, we're just people and some of us mm. have dif- different proportions of those traits. But it was all about a sort of a fetishization of technique and it was about stamping people with technique and the technique was kind of quite amazing. And, I, you know, I was a, a, a slave to that when I started. So I liked Nick Knight, you know, who was a fashion photographer and had amazing levels of technique and so mm. on. And now photography is so accessible. It, you know, you have camera phones, everybody can take half decent pictures so photography is free to be about something more interesting which is about uh, what you have to say for yourself how do you feel about this about intimacy capturing sort of intimate relationships and that's what I try and do with my portraits even my portraits of celebrity you um, I, I try and have an authentic human exchange and try and record that relationship I had with the people on the day um, with um, celebrities obviously you kind of uh have it's a bit more stressful because there's prs and you know and so you have to do things on a certain day so you're kind of you can't use available light necessarily but with technological advances now you know digital slrs are a very highly evolved piece of equipment so you you can really pare things down and that's what i did i just used a tripod and and a camera no assistance uh you know on my other shoots you know especially advertising shoots you there might be 20 people there you know all kind of putting their two penneth in and a digital operator um so it was just me and and another person and i mean i try and do that with my portraits generally is just have a bit of a laugh it's also Mm -hmm. about as i said the intrinsic pleasure of how you want to lead your life and it's more fun if you don't have any preconceived ideas and you just kind of have a spontaneous human exchange rather than arriving and and sort of stamping someone with some silly technique that will look dated in 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 a decade and also the other thing about daylight available light is it sort of has a lineage going back to you know renaissance painting you know one directional lighting it's so simple you know and that's that's why the pictures say, for instance, of August Sander, whose work was greatly constrained under the Nazis, still look quite contemporary, apart from the clothing that people were wearing in the 1920s. The pictures mm. have a sort of modern um, and dateless kind of quality to them. So I was trying to emulate that, really, and, and you know, do something that will stand the test of time, that won't kind of date, will have kind of a power to it. Well, you've certainly achieved that because you can't tell that they're from, you know, any different period of time or era. Um, and, and it did actually remind me of August Sander because um, I, I saw, I studied them and then the Beckers and then mm. uh, Gersky oh, right. okay. being yeah. the final... Love all, love, love all the Dusseldorf uh, school. school. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that really, it did um, remind me of that level of naturalness yeah. and, it's sort and of scientific p- method almost. They took it to a science, but this is really it, bringing it back to that more yeah, um, I mean, August Sander. And what I try and do is also another thing I do, you know, quite often people ask me about my cameras and stuff. I only ever really use a standard lens, you know, just basically what the eye sees. Mm. And I don't, uh, because pictures to me on wide, wide angle lenses or long lenses look like pictures on wide angle lenses. And Definitely. Long, they draw, draw attention to the fact that they're a photograph, whereas a standard lens is just what your eye sees. So it's kind of, you know, the, the photography doesn't get in the way mm. um, and it's sort of simpler, you know. It has an immediacy to it mm. that you're really there. Yeah. Um, and let's, I guess, go through some of the people that you've met because I, I wanted to highlight a few of them to talk about the diversity of experience but also of identity mm. um, because it was really interesting to me to see what people chose to highlight about themselves. Um, first of all, 
can I ask, did people arrange themselves and choose the backdrops for their, or was it kind of a dialogue between you? It was a dialogue, really. I mean, although actually having said that, what I tend to do is um, quite often, you know, my practice generally is find a space that I find intriguing that has a sort of a graphic tension to it, either in, the t- in terms of its sort of structure or, or, or the lighting, you know, if there's some weird light happening. And then basically just put someone into that space. But be mindful of the fact that if you have, you're dealing with a person, so you don't want them to have hard light that's going to sort of be uncomfortable. And then, and then just record the relationship I have with that person. So quite often, you know, you know, you hire a, you're in a studio photographing somebody, you know, like I photographed, um, what's his name? Um, Kanye West yeah. and, uh, you know, I ended up photographing him in the goods lift because it's, it was, because when I arrived to do the shoot, he, he, he'd obviously been to Louis Vuitton and he'd been given a bag and he basically, in spite of the fact that it'd been, it'd been announced that we were going to have an hour and different changes of clothing he just said that he was going to be posing with the bag in all the pictures and not going to take his sunglasses off and it is digressing from the book yeah not taking no. off his uh, <laughs> scarf so mm. i thought well actually it makes more he looks like he's coming to the shoot or leaving the shoot so i put him in the goods lift and and it made for a more interesting and authentic picture really definitely because and, and i had the sort of doors closing and he was sort of staring out and and it's a good example of the fact that you know i don't like having preconceived ideas I don't like sort of mood boards as mm. is the case you know it's so kind of um, it's such an industry printed media in decline that, and there's so kind of money constraints that people are kind of really concerned all the time with, with nailing it down before it's even happened and the best things happen spontaneously the things you're always like Diane Arbus said sort of looking for something you didn't know you were, you were looking for you know you're yeah. searching for something that you haven't seen before you know that's what's thrilling about photography generally yeah, and why some of the best photographers might frustrate the hell out of editors. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So then um, looking at one of the, the people, um, it's on page 38 for anyone who has the book, it's Miriam Finkelstein. And I found her um, written words really interesting because she said, I think of myself as a person, a wife and mother first and a survivor last. Mm. And I mean, this book is about Holocaust survivors, but it has the full breadth of um, identifying with or not with actively mm. against um, being termed a survivor or then or having some form of tension or conflict around that um, mm. being la- that, that label. That picture was key, really, because I, I did. I think it was sort of exemplifies. Um, several people have sort of asked me you know is there sort of some unifying quality that survivors have and of course there isn't I mean they're all just people that happened in, they, that were in, in this extraordinary event you know caught up in this event and and that's that you know she was very keen to assert that and in, in fact her son is Daniel Finkelstein who's a lord I don't know if you know that but uh, no. he, wor- he works for uh, the, the Times you know he was a, right. an, an advisor to David Cameron and I remember that shoot very well she was obviously he I can see where he got his kind of intellect from because she sort of was very um you know astute and kind of aware of how what she was saying and and chose her words very carefully Mm, and she's looking almost directly into the lens i think Mm. in in a doorway with this really interesting um print of a kind of yeah, it's hard to describe, but it's a very floral botanical kind yeah. of um, wallpaper. It's sad, it's sad, actually. I should say she died in January. And um, in fact, her son wrote in a, a leader in the Times and happened to mention, you know, the, the portrait. Uh, yeah. And uh, yeah, so yeah, it is, it's kind of that, that was actually kind of a sobering 
uh, it made me realise how important it was to get this thing done because um, in the process of uh, finding a publisher, I was really keen that they they were very um, insistent upon the biographical element. So all the biographies at the back mm. back third of the book have been sort of um, historically kind of verified. They hired a, a Holocaust historian, and so it was important to kind of um, contact all the survivors and get there now that it was a book to get them to be happy to be in the book and uh, and during that process of contacting them I found out that you know between 30 or 40 percent of the people I started photographing 10 years almost 10 years ago had had passed mm, and then so you see some of their family members actually writing or putting their names to yeah those absolutely stories. Yeah, absolutely yeah well it, it just goes to show that it's a really important I guess, documentary mm. tool as much as it is a personal uh, thing for the families and the yeah. people themselves. Well, I had, I, I, it's been, I've, I've had a great response. I mean, I, I because I, I sort of wrote to Alain de Botton, a philosopher who, um, you know, he has a very clear way of uh, writing and I mm. kind of thought that, you know, maybe he could be involved in some way. And so because he sort of gave me some input, I sent him a copy of the book and he he, he direct messaged me on Twitter and said it was a, a incredibly moving and a masterpiece. And so I knew I was onto something good because that word doesn't get bandied around no. uh, lightly. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't use that word because it's kind of like, you know, it, only time will tell. But certainly uh, the, what I was going to say was the most important people that that I've really enjoyed getting positive feedback from. You can imagine, you know, the families of the people, uh, uh, because I insisted on everybody who uh, uh, participated uh, getting a copy of the book. So yeah. it's been great getting emails from people who who see their, their, you know, their family member, you know, in the book and, you know, really don't feel misrepresented and feel that, you know, that that's, you know, it's a proud sort of family heirloom mm. on a personal level. And it's something that I guess... It's not a typical historical document, but I think it actually adds a lot more to historical scholarship. Mm. Um, and, I mean, we are progressing more and more to a humanistic view of history and it's less about facts and statistics. Uh, it's also about the human experience and oral history and um, narrative that, that is around people's experiences of historic events. Mm. And this, I think, really gives a richness to it. Um, and some of the people there um, who, who you interviewed or, or spoke to um, had been it had experienced Kristallnacht as a as a child, um, who have been or were in concentration camps. The majority of were in concentration camps across Europe, mm. uh, in even in Eastern Europe. Um, and one of the another interesting person that I saw there was Inga Auerbacher. And she says um, at the end of her piece, she kind of recites a bit of a poem and she says, I am a star, exclamation point. Mm. And she's wearing her Jude uh, Star of David mm. uh, on on her coat or jacket. Yeah, yeah. Is that, was that really the, the Star of David that she had yeah, at the time? Yeah, it was, yeah. No, she's a remarkable woman. And, uh, I mean, that th there's been a f there's, there are a few really, really memorable shoots and that was definitely one of them. Yeah. Um, and what she, what her poem that she wrote, you know, was, was fantastic. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it it is quite sort of personally inspiring meeting meeting these people. I mean, I I was did an interview with uh, Dieter Gould, who's uh, runs a gallery in uh, in Melbourne, and uh, I was just the the 
this sort of dynamism. She's a great grandmother, and and the, and the day that we did the interview, she's she'd been playing tennis. <laughs> it was quite quite extraordinary. But you know, there is uh, you know, I I do think I did I do want to emphasise you know that there are lots. It's a whole multifaceted group of people, it but is. but there are kind of people like D, like Dita or um, Inga that are kind of uh, quite extraordinary. Yeah, and she has this real strength. defiance. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In her eyes, she's just mm. kind of looking like you know mm. you can't define me. Mm. Yeah, it's it's amazing. And then um, some other kind of aspects, I guess, of the diversity of people that you've got here um, is that there are some people like Maurice Blick who says that he really wants to honour and celebrate those of us whose rich and full lives have embraced the future. Mm. And so his point was, well, I might, that may have happened, but we should also be focusing on the fact that we're not victims necessarily. Absolutely. We are humans who have had achievements and happiness yeah. and success. Yeah, he's a very renowned uh, sculptor, actually. And uh, I was uh, I was concerned that uh, that he wouldn't... Um, uh, I photographed him and then he kind of... He was he was sort of very reluctant to be to be sort of associated and defined by by the Holocaust and uh, he did and he w- he didn't write anything at the time and so I sort of spent a few weeks uh, after that or actually probably a couple of years sort of tra- uh, pestering him and sort yeah. of going around and trying to persuade him to because he's got beautiful handwriting he as does, well yeah. and uh, and it's I really like that picture and uh, you know I've won him over and now he's sort of seen the book he absolutely loves it and he was very clear as a as a sculptor he said you know in the end he sort said look it's um it's your copyright you you do it and everything but when he saw the book he was really happy you know well that's good to hear because he he's photographed in his workshop i Mm, believe yeah mm. and what about the people who are in melbourne because i know that that there's a quite a great deal of holocaust survivors that you met in melbourne Mm. who are some of the people that stood out to you in terms of their stories and i mean i'm sure all of them are fascinating but if what kind of um, interesting things did you hear from these people in Melbourne? I mean, there were there there were I think the most unusual. I mean, I, I've I've liked them all for different reasons, yeah. but um, one of them, I mean, just historically, there were two uh, women who are who were sort of Mengele twins, uh, which obviously I don't think there can be many people who survived, survived that. Yeah. And just so um, listeners know, uh, Joseph Mengele was doing, uh, he was a doctor who conducted experiments at Auschwitz on twins mm. um, and they were very brutal medical experiments. Well, one of them was married and uh, he was intending to, uh, to, for them, you know, treating them like cattle, basically mm. wanting them to um, uh, mate with uh, some male identical twins in order to do research and, uh, you know, their likelihood of having more twins, you know, it was absolutely horrendous. Um, and then there was, a, there, there were, there were there were pictures I really like. There's a, a woman called Bronya Rosenbaum, uh, which I sort of photographed through the typical sort of Aussie fly re- uh, screen. Screen, and yeah. uh, it has a sort of a painterly quality to it. And and that, that was another one I was sort of tr- um, trying to sort of track her down because it was one. Some of the um, uh, what happened was over the course of doing the uh, the shoots in London, yeah. and then in uh, in Australia, I'd sort of do an interview with uh, the Australian Jewish News and sort of get people to come to me and and, part- and to participate. And then after I left Australia, I got a phone call from, or I got someone contacted me, Miriam Hechtman, who's the granddaughter of survivors. And she sort of enabled, because I think it became such a big and and quite um, intimidating project. So she was able to sort of help me make trips to Israel and then... um, and then New York to finish off with. But when I was in before Miriam and her organisational skills, I was photographing Bronya and people in, around Melbourne and it was kind of quite 
quite sort of relaxed so I'd photograph someone and they'd say oh I know a survivor go to so I only had addresses and so on and I really liked the picture of Bronya and I was worried I wouldn't be able to sort of get her to find her and tell her about it but I managed to find her son and and he sort of uh, helped uh, initiate the because initially people yeah. she didn't have any recollection of having been photographed because it was like nine years before of course so, yes yeah so it was quite uh, it's last year was quite a um, uh, kind of you know it was a we had to be quite rigorous uh, with because I wanted everybody to be to be clear about what they were being involved in mm. and and so initially, you know, people were had some people had didn't remember me coming round, you know. Yeah. So it was quite difficult, kind of making that contact again and, and getting things up and running. Definitely. And were most of the people opting into the process, or was there any? Were there any people apart from the sculptor who you had to really? Convince? No, there was a there was another, a woman in London uh, who who's uh, has testimonies testimonies on the Spielberg. Uh, I think Barbara Stimler and um, and she had a bad hand uh, and oh, uh, right. at the time of I did the portrait. She died sadly, yeah. but um, I couldn't uh, get her to, to write anything. And then subsequently, uh, I sent her. She asked to see the picture, and she wasn't really sure about the picture. And uh, you know, I think she sort of just felt it was quite intense, you know, because it's quite difficult to scrutinise yourself mm. uh, in that way, because the pictures do have a sort of uh, tension to them. Uh, and then, you know, subsequently, I, that took a bit of persuading. But on the whole, the whole way I contacted people uh, and it meant that there was a self-selecting group of people who were kind of uh, up for up for the whole process. That's really, it's just fantastic. And I just want to, um, I guess, highlight one final thing that uh, in the foreword by Howard Jacobson, who's a, a British author and a Man Booker Prize winner, he talks about or references Primo Levi's um, memoir or autobiography about living in mm. concentration camp. And he talks about um, something called as though invisibility and mm. talking about, I guess, the not that these people or survivors were invisible, but that they felt as though they weren't heard or what they were saying about what happened was not really understood or fully sunk in to, mm. to other people. And that's one of the interesting things that I have come across as well in scholarship is that directly after World War II, there was more, um, I guess, consciousness about what had happened immediately. Um, but then there was this need to kind of shove it aside, not only from Holocaust survivors, but also from those who were perpetrating things and or just being um, bystanders to mm -hmm. what happened. And it was only in the 60s and 70s that things really started to come into the light with the Eichmann trial. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when people were brought to justice, that really started to actually mm -hmm. make people confront this past. Mm -hmm. were, there, were, they similar, were there similar experiences with some of the people you met in, in the sense that they either weren't heard, they felt that invisibility or um, they only felt that they were being heard, you know, 30 years on? Yeah, I think I think quite often, uh, not all of them, but a, the signif a significant number of people didn't feel able to talk about it, didn't really talk about it with their family. I quite often heard that from the family that they didn't really, they were, they just wanted to get on with their lives and move on. And then, and then I think that was, it was quite good timing for a number of reasons when I started this project, because, you know, technically, I mean, if I'd been shooting on film, which is where, the way I used to shoot, you know, shooting 200 portraits all around the world funded by me would have been kind of quite a, an, you know, a, a, 
a difficult kind of obstacle to you know just in terms of finance yeah uh, but al- but also I think in the past people have not really wanted to engage or talk about it and I think people are reaching the end of their lives and so they they feel it's important to kind of state their experience and their facts as they as they saw them and also I think you know with regard to what Howard said you know I, I do think it's quite prescient because of in this it's very disturbing all this sort of this idea this sort of moral ambiguity sort of moral relativism you know and 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 this idea that you know somebody you know you do a search for did the holocaust happen and the first site you come to is a sort of far right search you know sort of far right kind of organization sort of gaming google and this kind of proliferation of rubbish mm. in relation to the holocaust you know as billy wilder said you know if the holocaust didn't happen what happened to my family you know and so it was kind of a, a good rebuttal to kind of holocaust denial which to me is kind of you know so kind of obnoxious still existent and mm. also the uh, the comparisons that are constantly made between hitler and some other person yeah. um it's really so unhelpful absolutely uh, this is an unprecedented event uh, in mm. terms of the the history and this particular event of the holocaust yeah it really is unique and you can't compare it to other things oh absolutely it's just ridiculous to compare i mean the you know the Ger- the german sort of society you know was 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 very very advanced you know it was it was the systemization of it you know the the, the peop- people you know bourgeois people professional classes sort of you know designing and building sort of gas chambers in a very cold and methodical germanly engineered way you know that's what's so kind of chilling about it so yeah comparisons are kind of you know the lots of bad stuff happens but yeah it's kind of chilling in a way that um is is very disturbing well this book um really does fill a void i think and it does it beautifully and it is a masterpiece I would agree with Alain de Botton <laughs> Thank you. Um, I'm so glad that I managed to get a copy to look through and um, I'm going to savour it as well and I hope people can check it out um, if, if you're interested it's called Survivor, a portrait of the survivors of the Holocaust and uh, even if you Google it there are some articles already with um, some of the images um, that have been taken but I would advise to really look at the book because it's completely different to see it on paper in your hands mm. i think well i was gonna say if, if anyone's in melbourne we've got an event on sunday at the holocaust museum excellent so, and where's that located i do you know i should know <laughs> but it will, there's a facebook page for the yeah. book as well so which will have all the details on there great well we'll link that so people can look it up if they're interested okay, cool. and also um i'm guessing the reason why it's on sunday is because it's for yom hashoah mm-hmm. which is uh, australia's particular holocaust remember remembrance yeah. day which starts saturday the 22nd of april in the evening and runs through sunday the 23rd of april mm-hmm. this sunday so yeah. um this is the the right time to be t- talking about this and remembering Mm. the people who, um, you know, have suffered and don't have a voice as well. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Harry, for coming in and sharing your time and interesting stories and beautiful work with us. Yeah, well, thank thank you. And you're very knowledgeable about photography. I'm impressed. (laughs) I got a little bit obsessed. So, yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a fan of modernism and also, Mm. yeah, that the German photography Mm. is fantastic and often under-focused. So, Mm. yeah. Mm. Thank you and have a lovely stay in Melbourne. Thank you. Yes, this is 3RRR FM in Melbourne and uh, you're listening to the show Uncommon Sense with Amy and I have with me now uh, on the line from the Western Australian, the state of Western Australia, uh, 
which is about, I'm guessing, 9.27am at the moment. And uh, the, the very fantastic person we're just about to speak to is Dr. Monica Gagliano, who is from uh, the University of Western Australia. She's actually uh, the lead researcher on, on a paper or a research project we're about to discuss from the UWA Centre of Evolutionary Biology at the School of Animal Biology. Thanks so much, Monica, for joining me. Thank you for having me, Amy. It's wonderful um, to, to speak with you because I've actually been following your work um, since January when I read um, some references to your work in the book The Hidden Life of Trees by Peter Volobin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it was so interesting to see. I was really pleased to see that we have um, Australian research here that is really at the cutting edge and, um, you know, completely exploring new areas of science in this in this field that have not yet been explored. Um, and with this particular uh, research piece that and paper that you've published um, with your colleagues uh, that you're a lead researcher on, um, it's about plants being able to hear and listen and actually when they're listening identify um, the sound of trickling water when there is uh, no presence of um, water in the soil that they can actively feel in their roots and so they can actually hear when it's a real source of water. Could you I guess share um, first of all why or why you moved into this um, field of plant research um, because I know that you also research animals as well and what drew you to plants in particular and their, their I guess, behaviours and, um, you know, this whole new field of, of plant behaviour and intelligence? Oh, wow. That's a bit of an introduction. <laughs> you already said most of it. So I no, I've, I'm sure you can say a lot from your personal experience. Sure. Well, um, maybe I'll start briefly from the last piece that we just published last week on the plants looking for water. And uh, that sort of follows up on uh, on previous work, obviously, that we did and published uh, a few years ago now uh, on um, whether plants could emit and produce any sound at all, if that was even a question worth asking, basically. And of course it was because we found that actually not only they emit their own sounds, but they are uh, sort of listening out, although of course they don't have any Ears, but they're listening out for uh, the sounds around in their environment, whether they are from other animals, uh, other plants, possibly, and of course uh, from the actual physical environment. And so do they make uh, a crackling sound? Yep, yep. <laughs> well, that was what we found, uh, as I said, a few years ago, and that was with the with a corn corn plant. So um, that work has been developing is just um, is slower than one might hope, as usual. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, so uh, I guess um, because, uh, as you correctly pointed out, uh, I'm not a botanist. I'm not a plant biologist. I'm an animal ecologist. And uh, as an ecologist, uh, my main focus has always been, and I guess uh, it will always pretty much be, um, about interactions. So I'm not too concerned about what the cells and the DNA is doing underneath all of this. Uh, I'm more interested in like, okay, so how is the plant actually interacting with its environment and the and the others that are in that environment, whether these are physical elements or biological elements. And uh, so for an ecologist, the interest is the space in between things rather than the underlying mechanistic stuff. 
So I'm just going to, you know, uh, preamble that so the people doesn't get upset about, like, uh, I don't know how they do it in terms of mechanics, but yeah. I know that they do. And I, my interest is, is to know why rather than how. And so this new study was about why would plants produce sounds and how, uh, how possibly this could be of any uh, importance or advantage in, in a actual uh, environmental natural settings and of course this is not so natural because it's within a glass house but still is the idea of whether these kind of questions are applicable to the to the li- the private life of plants and um so it's got an ecological implication and of course water is one of those elements in uh, in the life of not just plants but everyone that is so fundamental for life that uh, if um, if sound was uh, gonna was gonna be important, maybe it was gonna play a role in this uh, search for for water. And of course, what we demonstrated was that it does. And not only that, not only they they can sense where a water source is by literally listen listening for it. Um, so that I guess from a distance they would know in which direction to go before they actually hit a humidity gradient, which would give away the water it's here. Um, but also, um, I guess it's just placing the entire picture into this ecological context and showing that, that there are some of the issues that we are trying to address in the animal studies. Uh, for example, the, the issue of acoustic pollution, and this is a, a pretty serious uh, topic as well um, in itself. And of course, the plants have never been included in this kind of conversation, but of course, plants actually do make the environment, as we generically term it. And um, because, you know, when you talk about the environment, really you're talking about the plants which are creating the space for all the other animals to live in. So I guess it's just uh, in itself it looks like a little cute study that shows that you know yeah plant can can hear water are great, but it actually um, opens up some more even more interesting question from an ecological perspective I guess. And talking about acoustic pollution and how that might affect plants, I mean, does that mean that it's uh, harder to, for plants to hear or identify um, sources of water through sound if there's other sounds around the environment that they're in? Well, what we found in this study is that they're very good at, um, I guess, passing their sensory world. So they can tell what different things are, and they can also tell the difference between, say, a signal that is acoustic, so it's a sound, and another signal, another cue from the environment that is of a different nature, say, magnetic or electric or whatever. So um, I guess the, the, the pollution is not just uh, a problem of acoustic pollution. For example, noise might actually interfere with the ability of plants to listen out for the sounds that they are really important to them. And so in my, uh, so, so there is a technical term, term that is called masking and the white noise is known to mask auditory cues in animal systems. So it's possible that that problem is actually happening for plants as well. And they might find it harder to find water sources when they normally would just be able to hear them very clearly. Um, I guess, yeah, uh, there is this, this issue of like just in terms of sound and then the other elements in the environment which are increasingly uh, creating um, a difficult uh, space to be in because um, much of the noise, not just acoustic, but also of other nature, magnetic and 
uh, all sorts, um, is interfering, I guess, with our, not just plants, but also animals, uh, looking for their livelihood and doing their things, you know. Absolutely. And also, I mean, in this study, it's worth uh, mentioning that there were some different sounds that were applied in the test um, to different plants. And one of them was the actual, the real sound of trickling water um, in, yeah. a, in a pipe. And then there was a, a fake sound of trickling water that's played through um, a, a, a recording or sound device that's played underneath yeah. it. And from your um, this study, is it true that it it the the roots grew more towards the the real sound and further away from the artificial sound of water? Well, okay. So the study was basically divided in three main parts. The first part was uh, comparing um, whether roots can find water when water physically is actually available. And of course they do, and they're really good at that, and we knew that already, and they use the moisture gradient when that is available. But they were as good, like literally exactly the same, if the moisture gradient is not available, so actual physical water is not present uh, and accessible, but it's present through the pipe. And uh, so we know that they can hear. Now, when then, of course, which coming from an animal background, this is what we would normally do if this was a mouse or a bird. Uh, we would test with playbacks because that removes any other potential confounding elements and you can test different sounds to see whether, you know, is it just any sound or is it literally the sound of water that they're after. And so the second part of the study was looking at the recording of the water. Uh, so there is no water there. <laughs> um, and then we also had noise just uh, computer-generated white noise. And then as a control, we had um, the, the playing machines, which are just like iPods with, you know, little vibrating speakers, playing nothing. <laughs> and, uh, and in all cases, which was really interesting, so these, these the playbacks were on one side of the, of the maze that we used, and on the other side there was nothing. And every time, no matter what sound or no sound was played, the plants would go away from that side where the players were. And then we realized that, okay, maybe they're actually detecting the players. And so there's something about these uh, iPods and little vibrating speakers that is emitted that we might not be sensitive to, but the plants actually are. And, and they tell, you know, there is something that, that is not right. And in fact, that's what we found when we, I had to do, you know, they had, I had to give them the choice between uh, the lesser of the two evil. So. <laughs> So I put the two speakers and the two machines, the machine were placed in both sides. And on one side, for example, I played the sound of water. And on the other side, I played uh, nothing or I played noise. And at that point, then it became really clear that when there is uh, nothing on, on one side and the water recording on the other side, they will go for the water. So they can tell that that is the sound of water. Yeah. But when there is uh, the recording of the water on one side and noise on the other side, then it's a bit random. And that suggests that, because I know from the other treatment that they can tell what sound of water sounds like. So it suggests to me that the noise is actually interfering with their ability to literally tell what, what is this? Where is the sound? Is this sound of water? But I'm not quite sure. And, and plus, of course, there is the compounding effect of the machines that are actually emitting what we know now is a, a, a magnetic field that the plants obviously is detecting too. So 
uh, it just shows how uh, very sensitive they are and, and how very good at separating different signals and different bits of information and making decisions, basically, choices. Well, these are important decisions because if there is yeah. no water in the soil, how long does it take um, to, you know, reach out through your root system towards the sound of water? Like, I mean, this is a pretty important choice because uh, it could be a difference between the health of a plant or the real, um, you know, perilous survival of one. Yep. Yeah, well, these um, these seedlings that we use were pea seedlings, the humble little green pea, and um, and they, uh, you know, they were able to uh, make a choice, and basically we were able to see the roots coming out at the end of the maze by five days. Sometimes I think looking at the at the growth that we would see at the end of the five days, I think some of these plants had already decided way earlier on, but we were not disturbing them to you know standardize everyone and have give everyone the same chance to, to choose whatever they needed to choose. So, but within five days, everyone had made a choice. And as I said, some I think would make it even quicker depending on the, on the clarity of the signal and on the disturbance. And that's what I mean. We hadn't had a chance because of course all of these thoughts come later, but we hadn't had a chance to quantify, for example, whether the plants they had, uh, the sound of water, just the sound of water uh, would uh, grow straight away faster and better in that direction compared to other ones which had to make, for example, the choice between the sound of water and noise and that might sort of waste some of their time or their energy trying to work out what they need to do and how to cope with the, with the interference, I guess. But I guess that could be the next step. Absolutely. Um, and my question is, what is the next step? Um, and <laughs> is, this, is this field um, termed bioacoustics, by the way? Uh, yeah, well, that's what it is. It's like um, biology making about, sounds. Yeah, yeah, and of course, it's like it's not a new term. Of course, we've been looking at uh, bioacoustics in uh, animal ecology for a long time, and uh, and of course, even in the animal field, you know, like uh, we had data. Just as a classic example, you know, we had data um, in regards to bats. And our bats, you know, if you think about them now, you think like, oh, they are the quintessential uh, symbol of, you know, echolocation and they emit these sounds that we don't hear and they're so good, at, you know. But um, there were data available for like almost 100 years before science actually decided, okay, yeah, bats do actually emit sounds and yes, they are ecologically relevant and yes, actually this is really cool. Mm. So I guess with plants, I, I'm not surprised that it might take a little bit of time for people to get used to the idea and to start, you know, I'm not asking anyone to believe me. Uh, here are the data, and uh, and of course everyone is totally welcome and that's part of the scientific process to like, just go and repeat the experiment, do a different version, test it, explore it, check it out. <laughs> um, and that's something that people could do themselves. Absolutely, as well. But even within the science realm, I think um, it's taking time, you know, for yeah. the entire thing to develop. But uh, it will, like, uh, this is the classical history of science. Absolutely. Guess, um, in response to your actual question of uh, what's coming next, I guess uh, for me, the acoustic aspect of the of the plant story as a more wider field, um, it's interesting, obviously, uh, but it's almost like a, 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 um, an aspect, I guess, of a bigger story. And uh, recently, we published another paper just a few months ago, and 
and that one was on uh, again the, the the little humble green tea uh, learning like a dog so like the Pavlov dog and uh, and this is um for me this is even more exciting because this is the kind of choices you know these choices about survival uh, between to find resources but in the case of the Pavlov testing uh, it means that the plants actually need to make association between something that initially doesn't mean anything like you know in the Pavlov dog Pavlov had this bell and he would ring the bell before dinner and the bell in itself didn't mean anything to the dog until after a few times it was like oh wait a second every time the bell comes food arrives yeah and yeah. then Pavlov you know by ringing the bell alone would get the dog to salivate in expectation for dinner so we apply the same thinking to the plant and and they perform really well and so what he's saying is that the plant can also just like animals uh, animals can so to anticipate what's coming but not just like as a program that is uh, you know imprinted in the genes and is a blueprint and it's just an instinctive response no it's a choice because uh, you know there is something that doesn't mean anything at all that is not even naturally relevant to the life of a plant and it becomes meaningful only because of what is associated to and only if the plant can learn the association then it can use that cue to predict what's coming next in the future and this is really exciting because I guess um, if we think about even a wider, maybe wilder um, perspective, you know, when we, even if we think about us, we make choices all the time every day about everything, right? And most of our choices, actually all of our choices, are based on what we experienced in the past, our preferences, our motivations, our expectation of what we think is going to happen if we do X or Y. And so we make choices uh, as part of our decision-making process, right? Now, when we do that, um, what we are really doing is, based on all of these bits and pieces of the information that we have collected, we are um, having, uh, we're creating an internal representation of what's going to happen. And that's what we basically call memory. And based on this internal representation of what might happen, we we, um, we collect the past, anticipate the future, and basically add to the environment in the present what's not available. So uh, we are adding information based on the past and, and what we are expecting in the future to the present. So something that is not even in the immediate environment becomes available through our memory. And so in a way we are extending the amount of information that our perceptual system as available to make a right choice, hopefully. And I guess uh, this uh, kind of extension of perception, because that's how sort of it's referred to sometimes, when we talk about humans, we call that thinking. So I'm not saying that the plants are thinking, but what I'm saying is like, uh, well, plants are resolving the same kind of issues, the same kind, they're making the same kind of decision choices fundamentally are the same. And, uh, and to be able to, to do that, they also need to create some sort of internal representation of the event. So they have a memory, they need to evaluate the past, they need to expect what's going to happen in the future based on that. So if they also can extend the amount of information that they, they make themselves available, things that are not in the present moment, but they, they, they can become available through this internal or internalized uh, system, then I guess, uh, you know, they are thinking too. <laughs> they really are, yeah. I mean, I don't think there's 
in my view, there's not a problem with saying it's thinking because it really brings it um, brings it into the reality and, and, and into another understanding of how we might start treating plants and looking yeah. after them. And, um, and certainly now when I walk down a street, I'm always cognizant of the different trees that are planted on the street and whether they're the same species or not and if they're looking happy um, based on how much they've grown and if they're leaning and, you know, how much soil they have actually available as opposed to concrete. Um, But one of the pieces that you uh, have written a couple of years ago with Alessandro Pelazon was about the sentience of plants, animal rights and rights of nature, are they intersecting? And I feel like this is the next, um, uh, you know, natural discussion about, well, if plants can learn, if they have a memory, if they have senses um, and, and know what is a threat and what's not and if they can respond to that environment where how have we evolved our understanding of their place in society and the laws that govern nature and their rights could you share with us um just finally a little bit about your thinking on that yeah well obviously as you can imagine i'm already biased (laughs) that's okay (laughs) uh, my science is uh, i think uh, speaking quite clearly and talking and working with other um, academics and scholars from other disciplines, it seems like uh, we are sort of like uh, still holding on to an old paradigm that doesn't really work anymore. And fundamentally, the only blockage at the moment that I can see from a conceptual perspective is that we're still hanging on to the idea that if you don't have a brain and you don't have a neural system, you can't do certain things. But there is evidence, not just from plants, but also from other systems, where this is just like, uh, and so what, <laughs> you know? Brain, neural system, great. And that means like we have a, the, our brain amazing for us, for our humanness, you know? A yeah. plant nest doesn't require it. And how amazing is that, that it can do exactly the same without having to do the same, without having to, to build the same construct, basically. Mm. So... I guess from uh, from this wider perspective, which really is where my science, uh, where I would like to take my, my work, which is, I don't even know if it's just science anymore, <laughs> but um, it's about questioning these premises and asking maybe more relevant question. Instead of getting hung up on like, oh, I don't have brains, so you can't even ask the question. No, it's like, well, let's have a look and let's see, because... Uh, Maybe, the, you know, they can do this in other ways. And if they can, then we need to reformulate our question, not just simply say the plants can't do it. And, um, and I guess it's not just a need to reimagine what it means for us uh, to, to think of new questions, but I think it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to, to, to rediscover and reconsider a new way of thinking about ourselves as the human component in the environment rather than think, rethinking the plants. The plants don't need rethinking. They are they're being plants and they've been very good at being plants. Yes. So I guess from a legal perspective, um, well, this story in general, the story of my research in general is demonstrating how uh, what we construct as um, nature in this case, plants, but nature more, even more widely, uh, is created, is constructed within and by the dominant scientific discourse. And, uh, and of course, unless we can change that discourse, we are getting stuck into a certain way of thinking. And the, the important thing about this is that how we think and how we talk about nature, the environment, plants, whatever, 
actually shapes what actions or what activity we consider morally, ethically, and ultimately legally acceptable. And so what we are prepared to, you know, say, like, yeah, that's okay. And, um, and I guess, you know, like this research I'm hoping is uh, at least annoying enough <laughs> to, uh, to, com- to, to encourage people to, like, uh, even if it's just to discredit it, fine, you know, like, but encourage people to actually have a look. Talk about it and debate it. Just consider this. Just think about it and and consider the possibility that maybe we have missed something up to now just because we were... And not because that's how science progresses. It's like uh, we have just been looking at the picture in a particular way. And what about if that is not the only way to look at the picture? And what about if you change the perspective together with your other perspective, you don't have to throw away what you already know, but it's like if you are expanding your perspective and you are including other viewpoints, maybe you can understand a little bit better, mm. a little bit more. Absolutely. When we understand where we have been, so what we already know, uh, we can actually make a better and more informed, literally, because we will have more information, uh, more informed decision of where we want to go. And I think that considering what I'm seeing from my research with the plan, uh, I think that there are some choices that we've, we've been making and still making, which we wouldn't, not only not there because someone says so, but we would just not, like, it would be just unconceivable. It would be just like, that's madness. You would never do that. And I'm sure that if there were aliens looking at us at the moment and see what we're doing with our environment, that's exactly what they would think. Like, what's wrong with these people? Do they not see? Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm hoping that it's uh, stirring this kind of discourse. And I know that from the reception from that I get from especially other disciplines, like uh, the social sciences, humanities in general, like, Uh, the artists, amazing, you know, they got a really important role, I think, especially now to deliver uh, these um, scientific concepts and ideas in a way that it can be really digestible and relate exactly. So I'm working with a lot of them and, um, yeah, and I'm really excited about, you know, been able to support that aspect as well. That's so wonderful. Um, thank you so much, Monica, for sharing your passion and s- scientific research with us. I hope people can um, take a look at it themselves and uh, they could do that by looking at your website, monicagagliano.com, um, to yep. see all your research papers that are up there. A lot of them are freely available, so if you're interested, you can have a read um, and also check you out on Twitter. Thank you, Monica, yep. for sharing your, your insights with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure. Wonderful. And you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. I'm Amy Mullins, the host of this show on 3 R. You can listen in every Tuesday in Melbourne at 9am till 12pm. And if you are elsewhere, you can listen online through the R website. Hope to see you again next time.